Hey everyone, this is Matt Kamen, your host of Nonprofit on the Rocks and co-founder of Envision Consulting, which is a national consulting company providing recruiting and strategy to nonprofits. And with us as always is Ashley Watterson, our producer. Hey Ashley. Hey Matt. So uh, I have two things I need to share with you today. First is, as you know, I like to see our popularity. And it kind of also goes hand in hand with your job and how you're doing. Is that fair? <laughs> I do feel that, yes. Okay, okay. So for those of you who are listening, there's something called Chartable. I've talked about it before. And it's kind of how like we could gauge where we are in the country. Well, guess what, Ashley? Guess what? What? You're not doing a terrible job. We are officially on the charts in Brazil, in Canada, in Chile, and in Australia. What? I know. That's amazing. I know. Now, I am going to tell you that we're not doing great here in the States, but we're going to just forget about that for a second and, and like celebrate our wins. Celebrate our wins. And also like maybe we're just in the wrong market. Maybe like we should really be focusing our efforts on Australia. I have the most brilliant idea. Okay. I think that it's time for a field trip to Australia. Yes, I love it. I mean, there are nonprofits over there. I have heard that there's a lot of nonprofits near the coral reef area where mm -hmm. we might do a little yachting, a little snorkeling. Well, I um, mean, there is global warming and corals are not doing great. We should see it firsthand, right? How do we even know it's not fake news if we don't go over there and check it out for ourselves? I mean, seriously. And, and how can we talk to our viewing audience if we don't see the coral firsthand. It's, it's really such a good point. And speaking of talking to our viewing audience, we can't really go to Chile and Brazil because I don't know about you, my Spanish is really subpar, but my Australian, I feel like I'm right on. If someone's listening right now, they think that I've gone away and an Australian person has taken over. Now I have two things. First of all, Ashley, what language do they speak in Brazil? <laughs> Spanish. It's not Spanish. I'm going to give you one more guess. Oh, it's not? It's not Spanish in Brazil, no. Oh. Is it you, you said you were a teacher, right? <laughs> okay, now I really am feeling like maybe I'm an idiot. I didn't say it's you're an idiot. I, didn't, I never mentioned Portuguese. that. Portuguese. Yes, it's Portuguese, it Ashley. They speak Portuguese. Portuguese in Brazil. Thank you for that education. I really mm -hmm. didn't know that. Look, know. learning. And I feel like now we need to take a field trip to Brazil so that you could learn a little bit about the fact that they don't speak Spanish in Brazil. What just flashed across the screen was that the more you know shooting star from the mm -hmm. 80s. Clearly I have not been to Brazil and clearly I need an education. So field trip number two is to Brazil so that I can learn the culture and at least understand that they speak a different language than Spanish. And I'm gonna give you like a five out of 10 on that Australian accent. Not bad, but when we go, you're gonna get even better. I feel like we've got such great ideas and there's something else you should know, Ashley, is that today's episode, we are interviewing Liz Lynn, who's the president of the LA Fire Department Foundation. And I'm just gonna say that I wanna do like a field trip in Australia, also to compare who's better looking, Australian firemen and women or LA firemen and women. It's true. Again, much like we need to really understand what's going on with the coral reefs, we also need to understand the comparison of the LA Fire Department and the Australian Fire Department.
fire departments. Yes, yes we do. I'm so proud of our LA fire department because we have the first female chief in our history, which is such great news. And she's also a lesbian, which also is great news. It's awesome. I mean, one thing that Liz really brought home for me was just, we all know that LA is one of the biggest cities in the country, but when she talks about how not only is it 471 square miles, it's 106 stations, it's two major airports and the port of Los Angeles. So there's fire boats because we have the ocean to contend with and really only met a thousand fire men and women on duty at any given time for all of that I just described. That's, that's insane. Also, she reminds us that not only is it the important work that they're doing that goes well beyond just fighting fires, but also how much the foundation is needed to fund what is not funded by the government, by the city. And we talked about this too in the episode because we also just did the search. See, I'm plugging Vision Consulting. We just did the search to place the president of the LA Library Foundation. And again, all of us need to kind of understand in the country that without donations to fund these major city institutions, they cannot stay open. They cannot provide the services that we need. So just a plug for all of the organizations out there, all the foundations out there that are raising money for those city institutions, really important that we continue to fund them. Really important. All right. So here's what we've learned on the show today. Number one, you don't know which languages are spoken in the world. We need a tour of the coral reef to be able to do this show. So at some point, we're going to have to go to Australia. So much important work to be done. So on that note, Ashley, is there anything that you would like to share with our listener before we move in to this lovely show with Liz Lynn? I think you covered it all. Enjoy this episode with Liz Lynn. Hello, Liz Lynn. How are you doing tonight? Great. How are you? Let me tell you how I am. I'm so good because I am about to finish off an enormous bottle of Boodle's gin. And I think I'm gonna straddle gin and brown liquor with you tonight. So you're gonna have like a double happy hour with me. That is awesome. And I feel very sorry for you tomorrow morning. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? It's been a day. I can't get into it, but it has been a day. So I am so happy to be spending my evening with you. I can't even begin to tell you. Cheers to you. Cheers to you, my friend. Hmm. And I'm going to tell you something that I'm only going to tell you just between you and me. My husband and I just were in Europe and every time we go, I feel like their tonic for a gin and tonic is better. So I stole 20 of these little Schweppes tonic cans from the airport lounge and brought them home. (laughs) They don't have Schweppes at your local liquor store. They do not have this Schweppes. This is a very specific- Special European. Yeah, it's a very specific like English uh, tonic. It's the water. It's the water. It's it's the water, I'm, I'm telling you. And two things that I learned on this trip, by the way, the queen of England has like three GNTs a day, by the way, which I did not know. That's what's keeping her alive, I think. Yeah. But the other thing is, have you ever watched The Crown? No. Oh, it's such a good show. But she has like her own British yacht and Uh they don't use it anymore, but it's actually like a museum. And so we went on the yacht and my husband pretended to be the queen, which he is every day. So. And would you steal off the yacht? Hmm. Maybe just maybe we've got some new salt pepper shakers. (laughs) Who knows? Right. 
Who knows? Who knows? So I just want everybody to know that you and I met for like literally three seconds on a phone call and I fell in love with you. And I was like, you're the best person in the world and we need to, we need to be on a show together. Yeah, it's building of a friendship here. It's building of a friendship. And we are like beyond connected to everybody in the world. And so we are going to actually have like a true party when this thing is, is aired. So I'm very excited to actually meet you in person one of these days. Yeah, no, uh, me too. I'm all about parties. I know. I know. <laughs> so everybody knows you're the, um, the president of the Los Angeles Fire Department Foundation, which I don't think people understand how city foundations, foundations to fund like city programs work. We work at Envision with a ton of foundations that fund city programs, whatever it is, right? The libraries, police department, fire department, all of that good stuff. And actually I was just this weekend at a retreat for the Friends of the Griffith Park Observatory. Oh. Which, which I didn't realize also had a foundation. So like what you do is so cool. And, and I'd love for you to kind of explain just a little bit about really what the foundation does and why it's so important. Yeah, I started this position about three and a half years ago and it is these city foundations that support departmental areas for the city are probably one of the best hidden secrets. They're not traditionally well-known. They kind of fall outside the caveat of what a traditional nonprofit is. But basically the city doesn't provide enough funding for the needs of the fire department. In this case, we were created in 2010 and it's our job to fund the needs that are outside. So 97% of the LAFD budget's personnel. You need the firefighters, it's labor intensive. That's pretty much a national average is over 90% of any fire department's uh, costs are going to come in personnel. So for us, it leaves in LA 3% that goes to equipment, technology, training, education, programs, those kind of things. And so we help fund that. And uh, we do three things. We go by the fire chief's request of what that was cut out of the budget. We have the 106 fire stations who have a refrigerator that gets broken and they need that. And then the training and the programs, the education programs to nurture uh, the next group of firefighters in the future. So those are the pillars of what we do. So you're telling me that the city of Los Angeles's budget for the fire department of LA is 97% going to salaries. Yes. So like- Salaries and personnel costs. Personnel costs, right. Like health insurance and things like that. Yeah. So like the remaining 3% is for trucks and maintenance and all the, and technology and all those things? So it goes, the 3% is you want to buy some equipment, a chainsaw or something for your local fire station, or they need to build something. They don't have the money for it. They'll call us. They'll fill out a grant request and we provide for them. Our last big funding priorities, we got them all gloves. Now people are saying, well, why would you guys buy gloves? Why doesn't the city do that? And the, the answer is the city does provide them the gloves. Are the gloves cancer protective that have an extra barrier? Are they really used with so that the hands can touch the radios? And right now, some of them have to take off because they don't fit that well. They take off their gloves to use the radio, and that causes could cause damage. If they're in a fire, they can get burned. So we try to buy the best quality that we can afford to buy through donor support and get it to the fire department. I cannot believe that. Just so I understand numbers, what is the budget for the fire department of the city's budget? Yeah, I think the last year's budget was around $750 million. And so that leaves roughly what, $21, 22000000 roughly for the equipment and the cost that they have. 
Which was nothing. And so if you don't fund, if you don't like fundraise for their food, these guys can't eat. And let me, let me, let me just tell you as a, as a gay man out here, like if you can't eat, you can't make a six pack. So like that, that's really important as far as I'm concerned. I thought not eating was part of making a six pack. (laughs) Uh, That's terrible. Oh, we've just, we've just lost so many viewers just now, just now. I I think you've just attracted more viewers, to be honest. It's the polar opposite. So the food, how the food works at the fire stations is that the men and women of the LAFD, they have this thing called house dues. And every day, whatever station at you put some money in the kitty that pays for their cable TV, pays for their food. They'll have someone and you'll always see them at the grocery store shopping or they'll be at a restaurant picking up. But those house dues pay kind of for their essential lifestyles because they they work in 24 hour shifts. And so that's how they operate and they act as if they're their family when they're there. So that's the house dues are what pays for some of those things. So I have a question in, related to food. Every time that I see firemen at the at the local bonds, which I enjoy, they always show up like in their fire truck. Why not just, I don't know, bring like a car or something? Why the fire truck that has to go to Vons to go shopping for food? So at the LAFD operates on 24-hour shifts. So what happens if they're going and they get a call, they immediately go. There isn't anyone to backfill unless it's, you get prior permission to have your station covered. So they're always on call and they might just have to leave everything there. But yeah, and, and so sometimes there are, if there's a chief or if it's a little bit bigger of a station, maybe one someone takes the vehicle to go get that and they keep the truck open. But typically if you're seeing the truck there, it's just that because they're making themselves available and they're, they are on call. Got it. So what's it like? What's it like living in a fire station? It depends on what part of the city you're in. If there are stations, for instance, Station 9 in downtown LA is the busiest station in the nation. They get over 100 calls a day, 100 calls. So you have to be a certain type of firefighter to really like staying that busy. Versus if you go into Beverly Glen or Brantwood, it's a little bit slower of a station there. That's not to say that they don't train. Usually kind of the LAFD culture is to train at least an hour a day to always be prepared. And so like of those hundred calls to the downtown LA fire department, mm-hmm. what are the majority of those calls? About 80 or a little bit over 80% of all calls are medical in nature. And then everything else gets divided into an elevator rescue, a structure fire, a wildfire. But the majority of calls that LAFD receives are medical transports to the hospital, cardiac, anything like that. Station nine is peculiar because they serve skid row. And so that's, they have a lot of homelessness issues. So you think about every small community in LA and those fire stations really represent those communities and what they're there to serve. So station nine in downtown LA serves a lot of homeless calls just because that's their audience. Okay. So this is really interesting. I did not see this interview going this way, but so now I have, I have some <laughs> questions for you. So I'm epileptic. And sometimes have seizures. Haven't had one in a while, knock on wood. And when I did, my husband would call the an ambulance would show up, not the fire department. So when when he calls, does it go to the fire department or is it going like where did the ambulance? I know this sounds so stupid, Liz. My apologies, but where no, are no, the ambulances no. come we're, from? We're, uh, it depends on where you live. So in Los Angeles, there's a central dispatch the calls come into. And if they immediately identify, it goes to the police or it goes to LAFD. The LAFD 911 call center is equipped with actual firefighters who are trained. It's not outsourced. It's not a civilian job. You have to be a trained firefighter or firefighter paramedic to be in those dispatch jobs. 
those dispatch jobs are probably one of the highest stress because you're getting 1,400 calls a day and you have to immediately weed out, talk about how serious you can't see them. So you're only listening to them about what their issues are. So it's, it's pretty intense. I, I want everybody to know that when you're thinking about fire department across the country, they're not really just there for fires. I mean, they're saving our lives or taking care of us at car accidents. If we have a heart attack, like there are, they're doing so many other things that it's crazy to me that we don't really even think about that. And even in terms of working with the homeless, we've interviewed a ton of people on the show who run homeless shelters or homeless organizations, and we don't even talk about the fire department. So I think that's really important for folks to know. Yeah. Homelessness and crime, they transcend any particular area or any cross-section. Everybody's involved in that issue. And we should all be involved in that issue. So we're into it, but something that no one typically knows or understands what the fire department's involvement is not like a natural fit until you really think through what happens. That's so crazy to me. I really, honestly, I had no idea. So thank you. Thank you for educating me. How has COVID affected the fire departments across the country? It's interesting because like I said earlier, what you see happening in neighborhoods and in society, what happens at the fire department is just a microcosm of that. So you see the, the pro-vax, anti-vax movement that was going on at a larger scale. What was happening within the, the LAFD was the same thing. You had very divisive viewpoints. You had polarization. You also had civil unrest during that time period. So we saw the best and worst kind of humanity with COVID. And the fire department was the same way. Yeah, not to get political on this show, but I thought that also I saw a lot of fire and police and all kinds of city uh, employees who were like, I'm not going to get vaxxed. And then the mayors were like, cool, if you don't get vaxxed, you don't get to show up for work. So I'm, I'm sure, just like you said, yes, it's a microcosm, but I can, I can only imagine how much more challenging your job was over the last two years with COVID. It's interesting because when COVID hit, I, I mean, we all remember when we got sent home that day thinking, okay, we're just going to hunker down and, and everybody went and bought toilet paper and water and that was it, right? But for the LAFD, it was a little bit different. I had received a call from one of the assistant chiefs and they said, Liz, we can't get a hold of masks. And this is about three weeks before the actual shutdown. They said, can you help us? It's something you stress about because they, they're saying it's coming but and we don't know how bad it is. And you're keeping quiet, but you're still trying to get them the things that they need so that they can stay safe to serve the public. And then Mayor Garcetti pivoted and said, okay, LAFD, you guys know how to do response, how to do incident command. You're running COVID. And so then we went into fundraising mode to set up the testing sites and to make sure that they had all the equipment that they needed. And then a year later, when we think it's dying down, we're like, okay, now it's vaccination. So for us, I mean, I think we're very lucky and very fortunate that we're fiscally healthy, that we were able to fundraise during the time of COVID, where they say something like, what, 20% of the nonprofits went down. So I just feel very grateful and very humbled that we were able to make some kind of difference. Yeah, it's been a crazy two years for everybody, but I going on three. But yeah, for you, I can only imagine. I mean, I'm sure you've gotten to know firefighters as well, individual firefighters. And what were some of the things that you were hearing them talking about over the last two years? How overwhelmingly tired they are, especially the last seven, eight months. As the divisiveness was growing with the anti and pro-vax, I had people saying, listen, it's our right. And I had the equal other part saying, my dad's got cancer. If we call the 911, how do we know that he's going to stay safe? 
all which are valid points. But lately, a lot of overtime. And we only have out of 3,500 firefighters, you only have 1,000 on duty at any given time. And so when you have that 1,000 on duty and you add COVID and you add all these other things that they're responsible for, there's a lot of overtime. And so when everybody sees the next overtime report by the um, controller's office, just understand that those numbers are because you had firefighters working five, 10 days straight just to help serve the public. So much work. Okay, I'm going to pivot out of COVID because honestly, I can't deal with COVID anymore. So COVID aside, what are going to be some of the projects you guys are working on at the foundation that you will be fundraising for? Well, big on our list right now is a helicopter. So this helicopter is like air traffic control. If you are fighting a fire, you always have a helicopter that is serving the air traffic control for the other helicopters. Well, the current helicopter is over 15 years old. They don't make parts for them. And it's had two or three hard landings in the last couple of years. So we all saw what happened with the Huntington Beach when it landed in Newport Beach and, and killed the pilot from the Huntington Beach Police Department. And they grounded their, their flights. This isn't, that's the one that's, if you ask what's keeping me up at night, right now it's that helicopter and making sure we can get it to the fire department before anything else happens. But the LAFD right now is embarking on a really exciting time. Fire Chief Ralph Taras has just recently announced his retirement. And so we have a new fire chief who happens to be a woman and who happens to be gay, who will be uh, taking the reins on March 27th of this year. And she's going to bring a whole different set of priorities. Obviously, every leader does. And it's an exciting time at the foundation because it gives us a whole new perspective of what the new fire chief is going to want from us. One of the things, obviously, that you guys have to deal with is global warming and more wildfires and all the really horrible things that are going on. Let's just talk about California. I mean, pretty much every day there's a wildfire somewhere in the state. So how is that affecting the foundation's uh, fundraising efforts and what you have to deal with? It's sad because fire season is year round and it's here to stay and it's only going to get worse. And fortunately, there's so much technology. I mean, it's really fascinating to see. It's almost like watching a war game go on when you see the technology that they're using and how they have an offensive and defensive flank and all of this stuff. But with fire season, it's, it's going to be interesting because who knows last, the last two years, LA itself has gotten away with being relatively unscathed. It worries me for what that means for the future. And we've got some very, very prone areas that could really go up if there's a bad fire. I'm always on guard when the fall comes. Let's put it that way. Yeah. What can the average citizen do in the city of Los Angeles? Well, really anywhere in the country, but let's say in the city of Los Angeles, when it comes to fire season, protecting us, helping maybe so that there aren't going to be these huge fires every fall, what can we do? There's a couple of simple things. If you're in a fire prone area, you want to make sure that you're what they call home hardening. You want to make sure that your home is as clear from debris, from brush, you want to make sure that you've got the leaves out of your gutters. You want to make sure that your home is as resilient to a fire or flame coming in as possible. And there's a place on our website that we offer information about how to home harden and how to do it. It's, there's just a lot of easy things. You keep your uh, grass very low. You creep your brush and shrubbery at least 200 feet away. There's definitely simple things to do. Make sure you have a go kit in case you have to leave. But there's just go on to our website and support LAFD.org and people can find some of the easy tips that everybody can do. 
when anybody funds LAFD during any time, we use those funds and we're very transparent. We've got a great rating on Candid, Charity Navigator. So they, everybody can go and see what we do and how we fundraise. But basically we send as much of it as we can back to the LAFD. We buy so much stuff just to help make sure that we're as well prepared for fire season as possible. Okay. And this is Fire Education 101. Uh-huh. You, you are a professor. What should I do in my house? What can I do now aside from like a backpack? What do I, what can I do to prepare for a horrible fire here? The first and foremost thing that I would encourage everybody to do is make sure you have a fire extinguisher in your house. Number two, make sure that all of your information is either stored on a cloud or, or somewhere that's safe, fire resistant, safe, depending on you look like you might have a lot of valuables, so you probably have a safe in your home. <laughs> but make sure you have all your insurance information, any of your medication, all of that stuff should be somewhere that's easily accessible, not knowing whether or not you're in a fire-prone area, just being as prepared with those things. If like the worst case scenario happens, where's your go-to? What do you have? What do you need? And those things that medications, your you know, food for your animals, your checking account, your insurance stuff... All of those, you should have copies in some kind of bag that is stored somewhere that you could get if you need to leave the house quickly. Ugh, I didn't even think about medication. Great. Now I got to like, <laughs> now I got to go back and take a look and see all those really annoying things that I know I'm not doing. Did you, how long did it take you to study? I mean, you will, I want to talk about you in a second, right? But you, you moved into this world. You didn't have the fire experience before. How long did it take you to learn about all of this, to be able to go out and speak about all of this? My first year was a master class in fire operations and a master class in, in, with the LAFD. But I was fortunate. I had some very good friends of mine were fire chiefs. And, and so over the years, I've known them. They would always talk about it. So I had a little bit of familiarity, but they were from smaller stations. I mean, the LAFD is one of the largest fire departments in the nation. So it's very intimidating. And the LAFD will say this themselves. They love their acronyms. And so at any given time, you're in a conversation and it sounds like a foreign language because you don't understand all the acronyms. And that, I think, was the hardest part to learn and, and just know those operations. So it was a good year before I felt comfortable in answering anything you could throw at me. It was an intense learning experience for sure. What's the coolest thing that you've learned about the fire department since you've been in charge of the foundation? For LAFD, I always have so much pride because no one really knows what they do. Everybody knows those four letters, but they don't know. When you think about it, it's 471 miles. It's two airports because they've got Van Nuys and they've got LAX. They've got the port of Los Angeles. So we have fire boats. Then they have one of the busiest freeway systems in the nation. And it's hard pressed other than outside New York to see anybody have as serving 4 million people, maybe up to 7 million when everybody's at working. So if you think about it, you have a thousand people to support that many residents and Angelinos. That's pretty incredible. And I'm proud that they're so good at doing it. Wait, there's only a thousand firefighters in the entire city of LA? On, on duty at any given time. Wow, that's not very many. Nope. Wow, that is really impressive. That's really impressive. Yeah, 106 stations, 1,000 uh, firefighters on duty at any time. What's like the most surprising thing that you learned that like, you think our, our listener should know? What doesn't get funded? And I'm not saying that as a person coming out trying to fundraise for it. When I came into this job and the chief would call me and say, hey, Liz, we have this need. 
And I'd say, really, the city doesn't pay for that? Or, or really, how did that miss the budgeting process? And I'm still learning to this day. I still get those phone calls. And I'm like, what? How, how are you guys surviving without this? And then so I understand when people are in a little bit of disbelief, but my job is to get it done. And, and we try to raise as much money to make a difference with them. Yeah. I think if nothing else, that is the most surprising thing that I've learned on the job that I didn't even know is that really all of these departments are not funded enough, period. And so the importance of foundations like yours is just huge. And so again, if anybody's listening to this, who's like, well, the city pays for the fire or they pay for the police or they pay for whatever it is, they don't pay for all of it. And that's why we're so important. When everybody talks about, because I get this a lot too, from the people who don't really want to support the LAFD or support a city foundation, the city should be paying for it. And, and so, and or the firefighters get paid too well. And I said, I just explained why overtime is the way it is. But my answer to that too is, here's a couple of things you didn't know they're going to shock you. Firefighters are 14 times more likely to die of cancer than the average person. And then the second statistic I want to share with you is that more firefighters die by suicide than in the line of duty. Because in the old days, firefighters compartmentalized and they kept everything in. And so you see higher addiction, higher abuse, domestic violence. You see all of that because they don't have any, they didn't have any way to get it out before. Now we've got some mental health and behavioral health that we try to really push, but when people say firefighters get paid too much, I say, at what cost? And or would you be okay with paying them more because they know that they're going to die sooner, chances are, or that they're going to have more severe long-term PTSD or trauma or anxiety? Those are all things that come with the job. So Liz, when we talked about how this show is going to be so fun, way to bring us down. <laughs> yeah, Debbie Downer. <laughs> okay, but then that begs my next question. So Okay, I interviewed uh, a, a woman who's the executive director of a ballet company. Mm-hmm. And what we got out of the interview was like, hey, if your kid comes to your daughter comes to you and she wants to be a ballerina, what should you say? What do you tell your kid who wants to be a ballerina? Well, as a parent, Liz, what do you tell your kid who wants to become a firefighter after learning about all the Debbie Downer stuff you just told us? Well, I actually helped raise my nephew who is a firefighter now. He's an engineer in Long Beach Fire. And um, to me, you have to be in it for the right reasons. If you're passionate about it and it's something you want to do, I'm never going to tell anybody not to do it. It's amazing what the human will and the human passion will take over. And so I, I try not to limit people based on what the 1% will be. I just say everyone can make a difference. And look at Ukraine. You have one president in Ukraine that turned the globe around in terms of what's happening. So I just don't ever doubt the power of the self and your belief in yourself to achieve what you want to do. Okay. Let's hope that we, we get the next generation of kids to become firefighters, right? Well, I do have one more question. Just one more. The advancements in technology are pretty cool. And I think if I read correctly, because I did do a little bit of homework, <laughs> just a little bit. I'm usually, I am, by the way, a terrible uh, student and I don't generally do anything, but I think that the LA Fire Department is like the first in the nation to bring in a robotic firefighting vehicle. Yeah. So that actually, I think, is one really cool thing that we didn't talk about. Robots. Yeah. What can you tell us about the future of firefighting? So the future of firefighting is kind of wild right now. With regards to the robot, Fire Chief Tarasas came to me and said, Liz, I really, he had seen the fire in Paris at the cathedral and he had saw, saw that they had used a robot. 
And he immediately saw how it could help LAFD. And he came to me and said, will you help me? And he is a big technology person. So we said, of course. And we did the fundraising campaign, helped to buy it. And that robot has gotten so much play in so many fires. And mainly because firefighter fighting robot is not to take a place of a firefighter. It's to do what a firefighter can't because of extenuating heat, potential injury because the building might be about ready to collapse. It also can move a car and serve as a shovel for everything. So it has a variety of purposes. It's cut down a lot of the time. You don't have firefighters trying to clean up a structure. Now you just throw in the robot and it just kind of mows everything down. So it's been very successful. And now we also have coming a electric fire truck which will be really cool to see. And that, that's going to see what the wave of the future will be is how that electric fire truck operates out in the field. Very cool. That's so cool. And I think that's a whole other show to talk mm-hmm. about the future of firefighting and also so many other really cool things out there. But that's a whole other show. And I want people to know more about you because I think how you got here is so interesting. You have this really phenomenal background. Before you took this job for the last, you know, I'm not going to age any of us. You were in theater. You were fundraising for theater, right? Yeah. The arts. And then you pivoted to taking over the, the Fire Foundation. How in the world did you move from fundraising in, in the arts to now fundraising for the fire department? How did that happen? It was, it was a weird story. And it's very strange because at the time I felt like, okay, I don't know what more I can do. I felt like I was making less impact in the theater. It's so hard in theater. I have a love of theater and love of the arts. So that's a personal passion. But I also have a very significant desire since I've been a nonprofit to really feel like I'm making a difference. So I started looking. I saw this position and I knew a couple of people that were associated with the foundation and I just kind of quizzed them. And I also share kind of my background of who I knew and how, what my familiarity was with fire. And it kind of all clicked into place. It was very strange. And now it's kind of funny because people say, what's the difference? How do you, Liz, how do you feel about the arts versus the fire department? And I said, when I was in the arts, I had a tribe. Everybody was like-minded. It was very cool. Being in the creative environment was great, but the people were wonderful. We had a wonderful team. I lost that tribe, but I gained a purpose. And, And so it's, it's very fascinating to see how life changes that way. And I kind of feel like I still have that tribe and I found new, new members of the tribe in you. <laughs> so interesting. So do you think when all is said and done here and you decide you're ready for your next, whatever it is that you'd go back to the arts or stay in this kind of world? I, I made a decision a long time ago, never to try to predict the future. Cause I love being surprised. I love seeing what is around the corner and and what pops up. So I love the theater and I love the art. So if it comes up, it comes up and that's wonderful. And I feel like that that opportunity exists, it should come my way, but everything comes into your life for a reason. And we'll just see what happens in the future. So you do a lot of fundraising now. You've done a lot of fundraising in the arts. I want to know if you could tell us maybe like your coolest celebrity interaction in any kind of fundraising that you've done? So recently, Polly Perrette, from, formerly of NCIS, Polly Perrette's dad and uncle were fire chiefs, and I never knew that. So when celebrities self-divulge kind of their background or their interests, it's really fascinating. And she emailed me and said, what can I do? I want to help. And because this is my background, and she was wonderful. And so she put together these PSAs and got all of her friends to commit. And we raised money that way. 
And then there was a time in theater when Jane Fonda was doing a show. This is a great story. For every show that came in, we would have the first day of rehearsal where all the staff would come in and they'd be introduced to the cast. And you kind of talk about what your role is and how it's related. We walked into the rehearsal room and there Jane Fonda is videotaping all of us. And she's like, I want to blog about my experience and how you're all part of my family and, uh, to make this show successful. No other person in all the years I was in the arts ever did that. And she went around and literally videotaped all of us that were in the uh, circle. And she was as down home and open as more, more than I thought anybody would be uh, from a celebrity status. So cool. I honestly don't think celebrities are worth uh, the time that we put into it in terms of fundraising. But every once in a while, there is a really cool celeb that not just lends their name, but actually does do volunteer work and does write you a check. It doesn't happen very often. And so Jane Fonda would be somebody that I definitely want to meet. That's cool. That's really yeah. cool. We're very lucky at the, at the LAFD Foundation. We're, we do get a lot of celebrity support. So we're very lucky in that way. I hope it continues and I hope we get more involvement, but you're right. You have to watch and you have to strategize how that celebrity can be most beneficial for the nonprofit. Cause sometimes it's not money. It's more sharing the word and lending your support as a public figure. Right. Listen, they can all write checks. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yes, they can. It's funny. I come from the nonprofit space. I used to run a few nonprofits and like back in the day, anytime that I met anybody or saw anybody was in any kind of like situation, I was always thinking like, how do I get money out of this person? Like, how do I fundraise for this person? And I want to like call out all of the executive directors out there like yourself, because no matter where you are in the back of your brain, you're always thinking, I need to raise money for this organization. I need to raise money for a helicopter, for example, for the fire department. And anytime you meet somebody, that's like the thing in your mind is, well, maybe this person could donate. So it is annoying. But I was actually on a plane when I was going to London, actually, and I was seated next to Sharon Stone. And if I had like, if I was still running my shelter, let me tell you, I would have been all over her to be like, hey, let me tell you about this. You've got money. Let's get you it. Let's get a check from you. So I can't, I'm so happy not to have to do that anymore. But I do. I try not to do it anymore. Which is sad because fundraising is the key. If you run a nonprofit, I don't care what position you're in, you're all in development. And, and, and it is a stress and it's a grind. And, and there's a reason why fundraisers leave the field in droves, especially during COVID. But the way I look at it is if you're passionate about it and you're a good communicator and you have initiative and you value relationships, if you value relationships, the money will come. And that's kind of the way I operate. So I try not to stalk people, but it's not beyond me, but I try not to. <laughs> All right. So the, so the moral of the story is you want to sit next to Liz on a plane. You do not want to sit next to me on a plane. That is the moral <laughs> of the story. Only if you have your bottle of boodles with you. <laughs> it's the size of my head, that bottle of boodles. It's the size of my head. It's huge. I think it's a Costco bottle, actually. Costco. I don't think they sell boodles. No, it's huge. It's huge. And so, it's almost gone. That says a lot about you. <laughs> uh, thanks again for calling me out, lady. So I, I, I also want to ask about events, right? So the nice thing about COVID, and I hate the way I said that, but the nice thing about COVID is that we didn't have to go to galas anymore. We didn't have to go to rubber chicken dinners anymore. We were able to do it online in our pajamas, give money, and the nonprofit didn't have to pay for the overhead of the event. I think things are coming back. So two things. The first question for you is, what is like the best or your most excited fundraising event that you put on? Well, there's two. Nominate your dog to be an LAFD mascot. 
and it's an online fundraiser. It's a dollar a vote. So I'm a big animal lover, and I just love when we get all of the pictures of the dogs and and well, you can nominate other animals, but everybody mostly does dogs because you you get to show up at different events and stations. But I, that's one of my favorites, just because number one, it's easy because it's digital, but more so it's because there's animals and benefits our canine therapy program. So I love that event. And our kind of hallmark events called Valor every year in the fall, typically November, we do it. And it's an annual fundraiser where it honors the men and women of the Los Angeles Fire Department who saved lives, saved houses. They did something extraordinarily brave and courageous. And there's an LAFD committee that reviews everybody that's you know done something significant. And it's an actual pinning ceremony, but we tell the story through video and interviews and things like that. And so people really get to know the ins and outs of what that firefighter did to earn them those medals. That's cool. What about though your favorite fundraising that you've done in your career? Um, when I was at Center Theater Group, we had a 50-year anniversary celebration. It was a big gala, and my job was to help get some celebrities and to help get some sponsorships. And so we were able to get a number of celebrities. It was a three million dollar gala, so it was all hands on deck and a lot of long nights trying to get everybody in there, but we did it and we got a lot of celebrities and it was a great night that honored 50 years of theater. I think the, the coolest, the coolest event that I went to was a, a dinner, but not exactly. It was for the, the Gay and Lesbian Center at the time. It's no longer now it's the LGBTQ center, but it was the Gay and Lesbian Center and it was an outdoor event where they had like 50 vendors of just restaurants in LA and you got when you walked into the door you got or the outside you got a plate then you got a cup and you just got to eat and drink the whole night for free I mean you paid for the ticket it was awesome so if you do that I'm in like or or you can do that and you can have hot firemen and women passing out food and I'm in in. (laughs) food booze and hot people I'm in I can get the firefighters there. I'm not sure I can get them to serve the food. I was trying to get them to cook the food and we had a barbecue event, fundraising event a couple of years ago. And they did do that, but it's, it's crazy. Yeah, we, we were talking about a food event just because a couple of the firehouse fire station chefs have actually been on like a, a food network show. So they, we've got some hidden secrets, hidden gems back at those fire stations. You went from development to now being an executive director. So tell me what you enjoy about being in charge of a nonprofit. I listen to my own advice. (laughs) I think the most important thing is I give the staff and myself the opportunity to make mistakes. I give us a chance to do something different. I am not one to be doing the same rote thing. If it works, yes. If it doesn't work, then just shift and go. And that's part of the reason is because it's a small organization. We can take risks and we can take chances. When you're more risk averse, the larger you become. So I really do enjoy that. And I do enjoy kind of creating a whole new team and doing things I've never done before. That's what motivates me as a nonprofit is what hasn't been done before and what can we do to make sure that we can make an impact. Okay. And, and here's a question that I ask every executive director on this show. What advice, I just graduated college. I see myself being an executive director of a nonprofit at some point. What advice do you give me on how I can get to that point? How I can, how I can learn enough, have enough experience, whatever it is to become an executive director. 
I think the most important thing is to watch and to learn how it's been done. If you come in from the get-go with your own ideas and, and you don't know how to monetize them, or you don't know if it fits within the mission of the organization, or you don't know the politics behind things, I think that when you get out of college, you, you're filled with all this gusto and energy, but with it has to come with wisdom. And so the wisdom needs to correlate and come at the same time that your initiative comes. And that's what makes a great executive director, in my opinion. Okay. So I have a ton of people who call me all the time who are like, I want to get into fundraising. What advice would you give me if I've never done it before on how to get into that career of development? Find a nonprofit that you're passionate about and volunteer. That's the first thing. Or do a lot of informational interviews, listen to Matt's podcast. And my thing is you need to, to immerse yourself in the environment to learn. It's kind of like they say the best way to learn a language is go and, and fully immerse yourself without any English for six months. And then you'll pretty much be reasonably fluent. I kind of say that you need to do the same thing that way, if, depending on the career that you choose. Here's my ageism. Back in the day when we worked, first of all, we didn't watch the clock. We showed up and we left when the job was done. We didn't watch the clock. I will tell you that there are many days that I cried on the job, but I went into the stall in the bathroom, closed the door, just cried to myself or in my car, and then went back to work as if nothing was wrong. That is not the case today. So my question to you is, do you have faith in this next generation of kids who are not doing what we did? For sure not to run this nonprofit world. Here's the thing. Every generation has that problem with the younger generations. When we were growing up and getting into the, into the job market, they're like, that generation is going to be worthless. <laughs> they don't have any knowledge. They think they know what they're doing. So every generation has that. And what happens is they end up adapting. Now, the belief system that these Gen Zers don't have a work ethic, but they have a belief in making a difference, that gives me hope. My biggest concern is, how is this generation getting the critical thinking skills? That's the most important thing. I don't care about your education. I care about your initiative and your critical thinking skills to make decisions. I tell my staff I want them to have a work-life balance. But if they can't get the work done, then don't expect me to be happy or don't expect you to last long at the organization because I'm pretty reasonable. So I guess that's my answer is like every generation has it. It's just this one is being defined by their work ethic, I think. So I have a, a friend who uh, works in entertainment. And so she has an assistant who I think is like 27 and she's my age. And so she's 30, right? He did something, I don't know, he did something wrong. And so she called him on it. She was like, hey, like you really messed up on this. Let me tell you, let me tell you what happened and how you messed up. Well, he freaked out. He was freaked out that she would even try and tell him he did anything wrong. And they had something called a safe room. Have you heard of a safe room at an office? No, but I get the gist of what it is. <laughs> That's so sad. That's there, sad. You have to have a safe room. So where she works, there is a room that is basically has two couches in it and it's just surrounded by teddy bears. And I shit you not. She said to him like, hey, you like whatever, you screwed up and you didn't send out the agenda, right? It was nothing crazy. He went into the safe room and he was in there for seven hours. She wasn't allowed to even go in to say anything to him. And then he left and went home for the day. They never talked and the next day he showed up and that was that. Can you imagine if we had yeah. done that? Can you imagine? The sad stories, I'm hearing more and more of those kind of stories. And all I have to say is I'm extremely lucky. I don't know 
I might have a Gen Zer on the staff because I don't know their age and I don't know what qualifies as a Gen Zer, but I'm happy to say that most of my staff are probably smarter than me, which is great. <laughs> but yeah, with the, I couldn't believe that. I, I mean, maybe there is more entitlement going on with the younger generations. I don't know. It, it's just weird that the sign of the times and like what's COVID going to breed for a new generation of kids who weren't socialized for two years? Yep. Who knows? Yep. Listen, I am a recruiter. I am in no way an ageist. I get, I'm an equal opportunist. Like anybody who can do the job, I will put forward, period. doesn't matter to me if you're a millennial, Gen Z or whatever. But I am just blown away by some of these stories. Like the fact that there has to be a safe space at an office is ridiculous yeah. to me. It's just ridiculous to me. But, but I think it's also a really funny story that that actually exists and i can tell you now if we whenever this show goes viral because we're going to make it go viral i'm going to get a ton of hate mail thanks to you <laughs> for sharing that story i want you to share more that's all <laughs> let me ask you this how many meltdowns have you seen during your career oh. that what you just mentioned is highly unusual but i've seen people have nervous breakdowns i understand the need for a safe space but to actually consciously think that you can't just go outside and take a walk versus actually have a room full of teddy bears, that's a little bit scary. Yeah, I mean, look, I make light of our job all the time, but it's hard. Nonprofit isn't easy. We're dealing with life or death situations in a lot of the nonprofits that we run, mental health, homelessness, hospitals, universities, whatever it is. So for sure, I have seen my share of um, breakdowns, 100%. But to tell somebody hey, like you didn't send out the agenda on time and then for them to go freak out and sit in a room for seven hours, I think that's a little bit overboard. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's completely overboard. But I love those stories because it makes me feel so normal. It makes my team feel so normal. <laughs> yeah, so if I reached out to your team anonymously and I was like, hey, what kind of boss is Liz? They'd be like, well, she expects me to go in my car and cry and then come back as if nothing happens, right? That's what I'm gonna hear. Yeah. Or they'll roll their eyes and walk away, <laughs> one of the two. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. So I just have a few last questions for you. I want you to respond to this question that I got. We do a lot of recruiting. We do a lot of strategy, work with a ton of nonprofits. One of the nonprofits that we were interviewed to do their search for a new CEO was a alcohol recovery nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And I had one of the board members say, hey, you have a show about drinking, which by the way, I don't have a show about drinking, but you have a show about <laughs> drinking. Why should we hire a recruiter for an alcohol recovery nonprofit that has a show about drinking? Okay, Liz, you're me. What do you say? I have a show about nonprofits and it's my job to make people feel comfortable, to make them enjoy themselves. It's not a show about alcoholism, nor do I encourage people to drink. It's just a, a fun name for a show. Well, let's be honest. I mean, I do encourage people to drink, but yes, I was impressed that somebody was listening to this show. So <laughs> yeah. they did their homework on you. I want you to do me a favor and tell our, our listeners who are left where they can find your foundation and why they should give. So anybody can find us online, supportlafd.org. You can find my phone number there and call me. And why should they give? If you have a, a love for your local fire station, if you want to make a difference with the level of care and the service that the, the city of Los Angeles provides, you should support us. And we're very transparent. You can go and see what our funding priorities are and what we're raising money for and happy to answer any other questions. 
Fantastic. We've learned some things tonight. We've learned some things tonight together. Number one, we learned that the city of LA doesn't really fund an amazing amount of stuff for the fire department, which is why the foundation is so vital. And for me, what I learned truly, and I had no idea, is all of the other things that firefighters do to keep our cities going. And that was something that I truly didn't know. So I really appreciate your education on that. Firefighters are so important. They don't just put out fires that happen to happen. There's so many other things that they do that is really important for us to fund you. So thank you very much, Liz, for doing what you do. And I'm sure the theater world misses you, but this world is so important. So I'm so happy that you're doing what you're doing. Thanks, Matt. And it's always good to hang out with you. So I hope to see you in person soon. And thanks for having us on the show. Of course. Thank you so much, Liz. Drink oodles. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Matt. So what did you think of our interview with Liz? Again, I'm just continually in awe of everyone who serves in the fire department. And I just want to take one second to shout them all out and thank them for their service. And especially as we approach fire season. It seems like every year we have bigger wildfires and the season just goes on longer and longer. Yes. And also on my end, a huge thank you to the fire department for taking care of me when I had my first seizure. Yeah. 1995, I think it was. So did you know in 1995 that you were an epileptic or did you find out because you had a seizure? Nope. I went to bed with my then boyfriend and uh, he shouldn't have been allowed in my bedroom because we were at my parents' house. So, you know, if my parents are listening, which we kind of know that they're not anymore, (laughs) he was definitely in bed with me and then he woke up to it. So at the end of the day- Did he call? Did your boyfriend call 911? Yes, yes, he did. He did. He may have saved your life ultimately. Maybe he shouldn't have been in your bed, but at the same time, how fortuitous that he was. Well, I'm just gonna say that all these parents out there who don't allow it, maybe just maybe, you never know, there could be an emergency. <laughs> so uh, also what I'm really excited about is that our next episode, which is gonna be with my friend Genevieve at the Westside Food Bank, she is our one listener out there. She is an actual fan of this show. We have identified her by name. We now know when we talk about our listener that we can actually just stop saying that and say to Genevieve out there, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love it. So I am very excited. Also, she was just promoted to be the CEO of the Westside Food Bank. So that's humongous. I'm very excited for her. So proud of her. She's awesome. And I cannot wait for her to hear her own story of how she got to where she is. So for our listeners out there, when you hear Genevieve's story, it's truly inspiring and impressive. Well, and speaking of humongous, I mean, the Westside Food Bank, has so much work to do, especially after the pandemic or as a result of the pandemic. Um, So I I can't wait to hear that interview. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. So that is what's coming up. Anything else, Ashley, that you'd like to share with our listening audience before we let them have a phenomenal rest of the day? As always, we would love for listeners to join Genevieve, our one listener, in listening to us, subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts, finding us on social media and streaming on YouTube. 